Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, the well-being space needs to do better for women. The lion's share of health and nutrition research is conducted on men, the biohacking space is brimming with bros, and the exercise space often feels male-dominated. Well, Christine Yu is here to change the narrative. Everyone's bodies are unique, but women and men do have some fundamental differences that can impact their exercise performance. And yet most exercise advice takes a one-size-fits-all approach, often in favor of men. Christine is an award-winning sports journalist who focuses on the intersection of sports science and women athletes. And her new book, Up to Speed, is an absolute must-read. As the dad to two young girls, I couldn't put it down. Tune in to hear everything women should know about starting an exercise routine from your teens all the way up to your 80s. Christine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great to have you. Uh, really enjoyed your book as the father of two little girls and a big fan of women athletes in general. So let's start with you and your background and the why behind Up to Speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes. Um, yeah, so I'm a journalist. I cover sports and science and health. Um, I've been active all my life. I played sports since I was little. And so I've always been interested in this, you know, not only playing sports, right, and kind of understanding how my own body works, um, but obviously watching it and really curious about how bodies improve and perform, right? Like what our capacity is. Um, there was the plan was to go to medical school after college. I didn't quite follow that plan, but you know, I have been able to combine these interests. And so as I've started to dig a little bit more into issues specific to women and girls in sports, I started to, you know, talk to elite athletes. I started talking to experts in the field and really realizing how little we know about female physiology, which was, you know, frankly kind of shocking to me as someone who ostensibly is surrounded by scientific journals all the time, right? And who reads scientific journals, I didn't really think about so much what that population study was, and right, and, and, and rightly so, I felt embarrassed about that, right? It felt like I wasn't doing my job in a way. But anyhow, like, as I had more of these conversations, I really under, started to understand that it was more than just an oversight that women weren't included. And so it made me want to understand why that was, you know, what has led up, led us to this, to this place where we tend to um, value men and male bodies more in sports and athletics. Um, what does that mean when we don't have data on girls and women? And how does that affect not only their sports performance, but really their long-term health? athletic development and their well-being. Um, so it was really just, there were a lot of questions I wanted to find out more about. You know, unfortunately, the, the same holds true in, in health and wellness. The field of nutrition, longevity, brain health is a big one. We've had Maria Shriver on here, and, and she really talked about the way that it was alarming to hear the data around brain health and, and women and how literally they were, they were just studying men. And it's egregious. And I, and I feel like we're, we're slowly getting better there, um, but we need to do do it faster. Um, with all that said, can you kind of walk us through like the, the major differences that you discover in this process between, you know, girls and boys, women and other than, you know, anatomy obviously stands out, but like, what, what did, what did you find about how we're fundamentally different 
Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, there, there's some fundamental anatomical differences, right? Just in terms of reproductive organs and, you know, breasts and, you know, women have wider hips and, and all of these things. Um, but I think a lot of it can come down to hormones in a way, right? Because fundamentally, I think that's one of the, the main differences between male and female bodies, because women have a menstrual cycle and our, you know, sex steroid hormones fluctuate throughout the month. Um, it, it creates this, you know, kind of dips and valleys in our hormonal profile. Whereas, you know, when you look at male bodies, it tends to be you know, more or less flat. It's not to say that it's completely flat, right? But it tends to be more even. Um, and the reason that this matters is that those hormones like estrogen and progesterone do more than just coordinate our fertility, right? And prepare an egg, you know, that could potentially be fertilized and be implanted and 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 all of that. Those hormones have secondary jobs throughout the bodies. Like there are receptors for these hormones in practically every tissue, right? Um, and so when you think about that, when you think about the fact then that those hormone levels are fluctuating, then that means that potentially, right, our, um, our metabolic, uh, the way that we metabolize nutrients can change throughout the month. The, how that affects our bone health, how that affects the way that we build and gain and maintain muscle, all of that could potentially fluctuate throughout the month. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the the biggest uh, difference there that, that we often see. And, you know, physiologically, you know, structurally, I, something that, that was on my radar a couple of years ago, I remember reading a piece, ACL tears. Uh, an injury you never want as an athlete. And there was an article and there have been subsequent articles and studies about girls and women. It was happening more often. And I just found that to be interesting because, you know, we're talking about hormones and, and obviously birth control and the menstrual cycle and all this. Okay. Makes sense. But ACL, can, can, can you walk through? And, and, and so I started to think, well, okay, what, how, how are we different there physiologically? And then the part two of my question is, there, are there certain sports, you know, we've taken this one size fits all approach, which we just love to do, and, you know, of course, with sports where maybe there are certain sports or activities where women's bodies are better. And in some cases, maybe, maybe worse in terms of being able to excel or being prone to injury. So I'll pause there and, and start with ACL tears. Yeah, I mean something I'm I'm unfortunately very familiar with. I'm kind of nursing my third ACL tear presently, which is kind of bananas. Um, Three same knee, what different knees? I've I torn my ACL twice in my right knee, and then this winter skiing I popped the left knee. So it's great now. It's bo now both sides are even. <laughs> both sides are even. But, um, but anyhow, I mean, to your point, right, that um, scientists and doctors started to notice that, you know, girls were coming in with these traumatic knee injuries, you know, and then in when they looked at NCAA data, um, there was this huge disparity, right? Like girls seem to mo be more prone. I think the number is somewhere anywhere between two and eight times more prone to an ACL tear. And that's pretty significant, right? And so we've known this. What's interesting is we've known this from like the 80s and 90s. And yet, you know, 20, 30 years later, 
those disparities actually haven't really changed. What, so you would think that education and awareness and all of this, that it might lead to some changes in, in those injury rate numbers. Um, it seems to have in, in boys and men, like the rates, you know, on, on the whole seem to have decreased a little bit, but in girls and women, it's continued to be this, this huge issue. And we see that a lot, like in professional soccer right now, right? There's a ton of knee injuries. And so what, it, it begs the question, right, that you said, is there something about women's bodies that might make them more prone to these injuries? And that's generally how researchers look at this, right? They, you know, they take, if boys and men are not getting injured at the same rate, then let's look at what's different about women's bodies, what might be causing them to be at risk. But I would argue that even just taking that perspective and asking that question that way, it is positing that there is something wrong with girls and women's bodies, right? It's positioning the female body as something that there's, it's deficit, it's a deficient in some way in comparison to men's bodies, because men's bodies appear to be more durable, if you know. So that's not to say that there aren't some anatomical differences, but we we tend to put the blame on things like, well, it must be the wider pelvises, right? It must be this the the Q angle, you know, is different between men and women, so that must be putting more stress on the knee and therefore leading to this to this injury. But what researchers are starting to understand is that if we step back from that, we need to also consider the wider circumstance in which girls and women are living and operating and learning how to play sports, right? So there is a study that was done looking at dancers because dancers like soccer players and basketball players, they're leaping, they're jumping, they're doing these dynamic movements, landing on one foot, which is you know kind of one of the classic um, ways that ACLs get injured. Yet there isn't that same disparity between boys and girls in, in ACL tears in dance. They don't see a difference. So the question is, is like, huh, why is that? Like, what what is it about dance then? So they they took a group of boy and, uh, male and female dancers and they took a group of male and female team sports players. They, you know, had them stand on like this elevated platform on one leg and then drop do a single leg landing, right? Like drop down on the floor. And then they measured like the force through the leg. They they looked at how um how they landed, what strategies they used to to stabilize their landing. Um, And what they found was that in both group of dancers, as well as in the male team athlete player, team sports players, they use similar landing strategies. So they, they recruited, you know, I believe more muscles like in their posterior chain, right in the back um, so that they could stabilize their knee, their, their knee didn't wobble inward. Like they were solid, right? They knew how to use their bodies. Whereas with the girl team sports players, they did they saw differences, right? They saw that the knee wobbled in, which is kind of the classic red flag for a potential knee injury. Um, they were less stable when they landed, so they were like more wobbly around, right? They weren't recruiting the same muscles in the same way. So it kind of begs the question, is it because those dancers are learning from an early age how to use their bodies, how to land safely, how to, you know, what what those biomechanics need to be so that they're not putting themselves at risk. Um, so, you know, it's it's led to this line of questioning of 
what are we doing or not doing right for girls to support them in learning how to use their bodies to even do things like strength training because we often think of strength training as also a risk factor because again boys and men have more muscle mass they're stronger they can stabilize their bodies more but maybe it's also because girls aren't encouraged to go to the gym and lift right like I have a I have a son in high school right now and his coach, his baseball coach has them in the gym like all the time, right? Like working out. Whereas on the girls' side, they're not encouraging that to the same degree. I do think I am optimistic. I think that's changing. I think it, it, a couple of years ago, I, I do think something culturally is changing where, you know, if you're a woman and you're a girl, it's good to be strong and it's okay to get in the gym. And Maybe there's a different cultural view of what aesthetically it, it means to be, you know, I hate the word, you know, pretty or beautiful, whatever it might be. I'm the father of two girls, so like I hate all these things. Uh, I, you know, blessed with, I'm sorry, I'm blessed with two beautiful daughters. Um, but what's more important is they're kind. Uh, so I, I do think that's changing. And, and I think what you said was so interesting because where I was going with this, it's, it's, it's not that you know, boys or men are stronger or superior. It's, you know, I think they're practice. you know, I, I think the the ballet example is such a, or the, is such a great example because you're speaking to essentially mobility and strength and that can be taught because someone could look at this and say, well, the answer is, you know, they shouldn't play soccer. Girls shouldn't play soccer. And I don't think that's the answer. Although I do think as you age, for example, I am a former college basketball player. That is not a sport that ages well. If I wanted to get injured at age 48, I would go play pickup basketball because my mind still thinks I can do things that my body isn't capable of. And that would be a recipe for something falling out. Um, so I, I think that's important. So so is it is it a combination of the strength training and, you know, for the ACL, ACL specifically, like, having strong quads, having mobility, practice landing, in a sense, like things that, that can be taught should be taught either at a young age and also for us adults who like to play recreational sports. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's a combination of those things. It's funny that you say about the pickup basketball. That's largely probably why I got into skiing too, right? Like I'm like... I'm not, I'm not young anymore and I can't do the things that I, I think that I still can. Um, but I think it is this combination of, yes, teaching and encouraging girls and women, right, at all ages to get in the gym, to build that muscle, to know and be comfortable with using their bodies, right? I guess, you know, my point in kind of pointing out this idea about um, or positioning or, you know, this, it, this narrative that we often have, right, of, of women kind of being deficient or something wrong with our bodies is that it can, it can create a negative bias and stereotype, right, in our brains. Um, because you can't do anything about your physiology. You're, you're born with the bodies that you have, right? Um, so I, I guess in bringing that up, it's, it's more that I just, I also want women to know that it's not like your body shouldn't also be like considered a limitation in this, if that makes sense. 100%. Uh, and I am curious, look, age is a huge variable. Obviously, there are things, you know, zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 20, and 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on. And I think within the zero to 20, there's it probably even gets a lot more granular. And I'm curious, 
girls, women at certain ages, you know, there's so many stages of development. I'm guessing that there are probably some sports that are better at certain ages. So for example, our girls are really young ages, almost four and six. And like every young kid plays soccer, you know, it's just like the first sport. When I was growing up, soccer was kind of the first sport you would play. Um, what, how, are there certain sports that are better for certain ages? If we take it from age three to 83? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's uh, any necessary conclusive evidence, right? In saying like this sport versus this sport is better for, you know, a specific age group. What I think is important is especially for, you know, the young kids and even for, you know, the teens and tweens that they are just out there playing a lot of different things, right? That we are just getting them out there, developing their gross motor skills in all planes of motion, right? We're not just running forward, not just, you know, doing, just throwing a baseball or whatever, or softball, um, but we're encouraging them to use their bodies in multiple different ways, right? Because I think, especially f at, for kids in, in youth sports, there is this tendency and you know I know I'm guilty of this too right in thinking that well if you want your kids to be good at sports like they should specialize or they should focus on one thing um but I think we in doing that it might be to the detriment like of longer term athletic development so you know for, especially you know for those ages before they get to high school it is playing a lot of different things, letting them try a lot of different things, letting them fail for sure. Um, but more importantly, just encouraging them to develop a love and appreciation for moving and using their bodies and understanding like how cool that is, right? Like what wonderful and amazing things there are that we can do. You know, before we go to the, the 20 somethings and beyond, I want to spend another moment on, on kids and teenagers. You know, I'm glad you brought up the point of specialization because that seems to have accelerated at such a tremendous rate. I remember starting to specialize in basketball in ninth grade. Uh, now I hear that's fifth grade, fourth grade. We live in Miami and sports are huge in the state of Florida. So anecdotally, we hear about kids starting to specialize fifth, sixth grade. They're playing year round and that can do a lot of harm. You can, you know, not before we even get into the mental health conversation, but this idea of rest and recovery. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about my experience too, right? It's like I played a whole bunch of different sports. I was terrible, but like I loved it. And I love being on a team. I love playing with my friends and I want that same thing for my kids, right? I want them to have that experience of playing sports and learning the lessons and building their character and all of that. Um, but like you said, like I feel like it it has shifted so much and so intensely into this idea of specialization because, I mean, look, you sports, right? It, it, it's a huge business. It's not, it's 19, it's 19 billion dollar industry, I think something like that. And so you have all of these travel teams and club teams and tournaments and showcases. And they, I mean, they market themselves, right? In the sense of we can help get your kid to that next level. And what parent doesn't want to do that? What parent doesn't want to give their kid an advantage, potential advantage? Uh, so it sets up this system where I think, you know, it, again, you know, speaking from my own experience, it 
made me feel like I would be doing a disservice to my sons if I didn't sign them up for travel baseball. Frankly, the reason we didn't was because I didn't want to like screw up all of my weekends until the end of time, right? Tra- driving around all these places. But I think, you know, we we put so much pressure then on the kids to um, be really serious and be really competitive. And we lose that, again, that sense of playing sports for fun, which I think is more appropriate, developmentally appropriate at these ages, right? And until you get closer to high school, when you start to like figure out, okay, this is the sport that I really care about and want. Um, you know, and it's something that doesn't just affect affect girls, like this is boys and girls, right? We're, we're talking about potential overuse injuries and burnout and all of these things, right? And losing their love of sport. Um, but unfortunately, it seems like for girls, um, they're disproportionately affected. So they're more likely to suffer from the overuse injuries, the traumatic injuries, the burnout, plus like body image issues and eating disorders and the like. You're hitting on topics that I just, mental health, body image, eating disorders, all these things, I think, hit home for any parent who's got a a girl or a young teenager. And we think about them a lot, Uh, even though our kids are young, they're not there yet. And one of the reasons why my wife and I are such big believers in sports are for a lot of the reasons you pointed out. Uh, You know, there's, there's the joy, there's the fun, there's learning how to learning teamwork, learning how to deal with adversity, learning how to lose, learning how to work hard, show up on time. I always say most of my most significant life lessons came from playing basketball. They weren't from academia. And we just love sports. I really love it for girls too. This idea of, you know, being, being strong and, and and capable and, um, and and building self-esteem. With all that said, can can you talk a bit about, that's my view on why girls playing sports is special. What's your view specifically on girls and sports and how parents should think about it in terms of the sports to play, the sports? I'll give you one more example. Tennis is a sport. My wife played tennis in high school. Uh, her high school, I think, was number one in the country. Uh, she went to Stanford, did not go on to play there, uh, but we don't really encourage our daughters to play tennis because it's so competitive and that if you're on that track and you're really talented, it starts very early and we worry about the mental health load and like losing childhood. But look, if, if the child clearly loves it and is talented and you want to do it. I don't knock that. But for example, that's something we kind of like, we're not encouraging. How do you think about if you're a parent of a young girl, where would you try to steer your children? How do you think about that individual sports versus team sports? uh, All of the above. So there are definitely sports like tennis and gymnastics and probably something like figure skating too, right? Where you do kind of have to start early because there are technical skills that, you know, it's, it's beneficial if you pick up at an earlier age, right? And so like, I understand why people have their kids in those sports at an earlier age, right? But like you said, those, um, those types of sports can ramp up really quickly in terms of 
competition and competitiveness. And I think that's that's in large part because of the culture and just the nature of the way the sport has developed over the years. Um, but there is also research around the fact that girls who play individual sports like tennis and gymnastics and, and all of that um, are, again, are more susceptible to some of these injuries, right, in terms of overuse, because their work, their training load tends to be higher. So I think, you know, I I don't want to say don't do this or don't do that or any one sport is is bad. But I think as a parent, it is walking into these situations with your eyes open and understanding that, okay, my child loves this and wants to play this, but recognizing that there are these potential um I don't want to say pitfalls, but things to look out for, right? In terms of the in terms of the workload and the training and all of that, and you know there are guidelines in terms of just monitoring training load for age. So I think it's that I might have to fact check this, but I'm pretty sure that it's you know the the amount of time training in in a week training or competition shouldn't exceed your age, right? So. Yeah, so I mean, just thinking about it relative that it's that's still a lot of time, frankly, right? But then also to your point is making sure that you do have breaks built into the year, so you're not doing this over and over and over and over again, right? So I think as a parent and hopefully as coaches, it is monitoring the development and really thinking about what is age appropriate, what is appropriate for a girl or even a boy, right? at this maturational phase of their development, because how um, a body that is, you know, right before puberty, you know, is structured or is going to respond is very different from a, a body that is going through their growth spurt, right? And so those, those kids that are growing super fast, they're kind of vulnerable, right? In terms of their muscles are, are I mean, their bones are growing faster than, than their muscles can keep up. Um, you know, everything is pretty pliable. So maybe that's a time where you think about, you know, monitoring the training load and reducing it, not doing all of those tumbling passes, not running all of those miles. So on that note, you know, it, it's clear that being strong, developing lean muscle mass is a way to mitigate risk. What's your view on how early, what, when is it appropriate for a girl or a boy, if you have that data, to start doing some resistance training, whether it be push-ups or squats or, or something to start working. Do you have a view on that? So this is funny because I my younger son, I mean, he's like obsessed with like building muscle. And like since he was like little, I'm like, okay, let's just calm down a little bit here. Right. And just trying to temper him. Um, so I will preface this by saying I am not a doctor, a trainer, or like any sort of professional with any sort of certification on this a lot of this is based on the research that I've ha uh, that I've looked at and experts that I've spoken with but I think you know to, to the point I was trying to make earlier I think it is this is part of developing that the, that gross motor movement pattern so I mean things like squats and like lunge you know, those are things that you can do body weight that you know are pretty primal movements, right? That our body should and, you know, need to be able to do. So I think like those are things kids can do, right? In terms of actually starting to focus a little bit more on strength training, um, one of the experts that I spoke with 
had talked about, especially with girls, you know, starting to bring that in before they hit that growth spurt, right? So kind of in that pre-puberty phase, um, so that you are starting to help them build some muscle and like learn body awareness um, and just being more attentive to what how their body is moving, right? So that that could potentially mitigate some of the um, potential for injuries, potential for, you know, other challenges they might face as they are going through that huge and like disruptive transition so that they can control their bodies a little bit better, right? Because that's, that is when we start to see that spike in say like ACL injuries in girls is when they hit puberty and when they hit that growth spurt, because, you know, they don't have as much control over their bodies. So if we can encourage them to start building some of that, or, or at least start building some of that body awareness, right, beforehand, you might be able to provide some, like theoretically, some buffer to support them as they transition. And then obviously, like continue to work on, on strength training as they move through, through puberty and the rest of adolescence. And when you looked at the data, were there certain sports where it was clear girls were at more risk for injury compared to others? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at things like, um, I might be biased in the sense that I tend to focus more on like endurance sports and running in particular. So if you look at running, right, cross country and track, um, there are a lot of bone stress injuries there, um, which can be, you know, pretty traumatic in the long run, in the long run, because once you have one bone stress injury, you're more likely to have another, um, but there are a lot of factors that come into play there. Um, in part, it is sure physiologically the way that girls' bodies build build bone, um, and the rate at which they build bone. Boys tend to lay down bone mass faster, better than girls. Not better, but just in a different way that seems to protect their bone health. Um, but really, for girls, it's the fact that again, bone growth and bone mass is very dependent on estrogen. And that is very dependent on your menstrual cycle. So that means you have to get your menstrual cycle and you should have your menstrual cycle on a regular basis. Um, but for girls, you know, you get into this tricky area, especially in a sport like running, where you think that you have to be lean and skinny in order to run fast, right? And so that's where you might start seeing some things like restricting your diet, not eating enough, where you might have some of these eating disorders pop up. But the reason that that matters is if your body isn't getting enough fuel and energy, you're, that starts to mess with your menstrual cycle. And so that's when you start to see irregularity. That is when you start to see girls lose their cycle. Um, so it's, the, <laughs> it's this big convoluted mess. So on that note, how should a girl or a woman exercise or eat according to their menstrual cycle loosely? If you could generalize that, obviously the, the menstrual cycle plays a significant role. So how do you think about what, what tips or advice do you have for those listening? How should they think about exercise and nutrition with the menstrual cycle in mind? I mean, I think that the like bottom line, the most important thing is just making sure that you're eating enough. Again, because when you don't have enough fuel, not only to support just daily activities of life, right? But to support your exercise and your, you dig yourself into this, this hole in which you don't have enough energy, your body thinks that it's starving, 
right? And it starts to shut down other systems. So that's why the menstrual cycle starts to get wonky. Um, but it can, that's why, you know, it starts to shut down things like growth, right? And so that's why you see all this constellation of impacts. So not only the menstrual cycle, not only bone health, um, but you'll see potential impacts on gut health, on cardiovascular health, on mental health, you see more anxieties and like depression kind of crop up. So it's this condition that's called relative energy deficiency in sport or red S people refer to it as red S for short. Um, but aside from those physiological changes, you all, it obviously then translates into performance impacts, right? You're, you're not going to adapt to your training. You're not going to recover well. You're not going to perform well. Um, so, you know, my, the main thing I just hope people hear is like, you just need, you need to eat enough. Right. And I think oftentimes we get really caught up in the how of the eating, the, the different types of diets and supplements and timing and all of these things. And we kind of just lose sight of the fact that you just need to make sure you're getting enough food in your body to support what you're doing. Once you do that, and once that's solid, then, you know, maybe you can start thinking about a little bit more about like timing or if you need to tailor it to your menstrual cycle or not. Um, you know, there's kind of mixed evidence on, on what that actually means and if that's helpful. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's eating enough, make sure you're eating consistently throughout the day too, because you don't want to dip into, you know, too much of an energy deficit at any one point of the day. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, as little as like three, you know, a deficit of 300 calories can make a difference. And that's not a lot, right? Like that's a snack. <laughs> that's like half a pro that's like a protein bar. I keep trying to like make a, a comparison of, of what it is and I can never figure out like what is 300 calories. It's like a protein bar. Yeah. Wow. So intermittent fasting, probably not a good idea. Well, so th that's th it, that's interesting, right? Because we hear a lot about intermittent fasting, and I think this is one area where um, there are potentially differences between male bodies and female bodies. So it seems like men can get away with it, though, and can perform either at the same level or perform better um, if if they are in fasting intermittently. But for women, women perform better when we're fed when we have that energy because our bodies are more sensitive to that downturn in nutrition than men are. And so on that note with, you know, the differences between men and women, I tell this to our girls every day, you're better than the boys. You're stronger. I, every night, you know, you're beautiful, you're strong, you're smart, and they're, and they're strong girls. And I love that. I'm curious, like, in your view, where do women or girls just have an advantage over over boys and men? And it's not just a case of, you know, a loving father who's trying to raise confident, strong girls, although I, I believe it. Uh, and look, if you just shout loud enough and you believe something, apparently that's truth these days. So uh, where, where, where does the data say, like, you know what, women actually, women and girls really do have an advantage over boys and men? Well, I, I, I will say that I think what you are doing is super important, right? Like it, it does create that context and environment in which your girls are growing up in and the the narrative, right? And the self-talk that they that they have in their own heads. But in terms of, you know, a sport, I think 
The one that's most interesting is when we look at ultra endurance events, right? So these are things longer than, you know, running a marathon. So people running, you know, 100 milers, 200 milers, 48 hours consistent, you know, at a time, Um, things I (laughs) blows my mind and I cannot even imagine doing. But so when you look at like world records between men and women, on the whole, it's generally like a 10 to 12% difference between a woman's time and a man's time, right? As the distance goes up, that gap starts to narrow. And I can't, off the top of my head, I can't remember at which point it actually flips, but I want to say it's around like 150 miles, at least in the study that I looked at, it, then it looked like women were actually performing better than men, right? And we, and we see this in races all the time where there are women who win outright, who you know are getting closer and closer to matching and beating men's world records. So Camille Heron is one of the you know best ultra runners out there and she's in her 40s, I believe. Like she either just turned 40 or you know is early 40s. She's still setting world records. Like she I, I just set I think the 24 hour world record again, like broke her own record. Um, and she's on par for like beating or matching and beating some of these men's records at like the 48 hour. And I think she's aiming for like 72 hours. Um, but so that's one area where there's gotten a lot of attention. And, you know, on the physiological side, people seem to think it might be because women's muscles fatigue, um, at a slower rate than men, right? So men's muscle, like men tend to have more like fast twitch muscle, they fatigue faster. So, you know, women have more slow twitch. So they're more primed for these long distance events. Um, There's some talk around the way that, again, we metabolize food. So women seem to utilize fat better than men. And so fat has more energy. So if you can use that stores, like can they, are they better equipped again to fuel themselves and sustain themselves on these longer longer distance events compared to men. But what I find really interesting is that, you know, as these events get longer, some of the physiological reasons for why men are are maybe faster starts to wash out, right? So again, we talked about men have more muscle mass, men tend to have um, higher VO2 max um, and all these things. But as the distance gets longer, those physiological reasons start to wash out. And what starts to matter more in these longer distances is, can you keep your food down? How's your mental game, right? Like when you're running that many hours um, through the night on no sleep, how are you going to handle when you start to get into that pain cave? How are you going to problem solve? Um, so there are all these other factors that, you know, in a shorter distance race, sure, they matter, but they don't matter to the same degree, right? So it's it's interesting to see kind of all of these puzzle pieces start to come together. And in the women that I spoke with uh, for the book, what struck me was all of them were were really curious about the limits of their ability. They wanted to find out what, or like how far they could push themselves, how well they could put these pieces together. Um, it wasn't necessary. These are tremendous athletes, but it wasn't necessarily, I want to beat this record or I want to win this race. Well, let, let's talk about that, the mental game. You know, it, in my view and in my experience, you get to a certain level of playing where 
you know, the, the God-given abilities, if you will, are, are about equal and the athleticism is about equal. And what separates the, the best or, or the, the great from the good is the mental game. Someone's ability to, to go further, to, to want it more, to, to be quote unquote mentally tough, even though I don't really love that phrase, but men- mentally tough, if you will. Can you talk a bit about the differences between men and women here? Yeah. So, I mean, as I was kind of alluding to, there is this difference in how, um, like, the reason why, again, this is mostly to, for like ultra endurance athletes, right? But the reason why they're pursuing these events. Um, and so, in some of the studies, it was that, you know, women were were more interested in like health and fitness or like kind of bettering themselves, again, versus that external um goal of making a podium, you know, breaking a world record. Um, And I think that, you know, that difference in perspective matters because who amongst us hasn't, you know, like started a race or a game or whatever being like, I got to win. Like I have this time or I have this time goal or whatever. And then it starts to go sideways and you're just like, oh, I like I give up and it's hard, right? Oh, I think it kind of negates the mental health benefits of exercise if you're viewing this as a zero-sum game where I'm, I'm doing this to to win. Otherwise, I'm going to be miserable versus I'm enjoying the journey. I'm doing this for the health benefits or enjoying company of my friends. And, you know, on that note, I'm curious, you know, look, many of our listeners are, are women and they range 20s through 60s. And... Many of them, you know, run or play team sports or, you know, pickleball is all the rage uh, for the longevity benefits. You know, I want to increase my heart rate or VO2 max. Uh, I I, want to sweat. I want to perspire. Um, And they also don't want to get hurt because especially as you age, you know, I, I, for example, I, I've never skied and, and now I just won't like not on the, not on the cards for me. To me, it's, you know, it's just <laughs> don't want to take the risk. Probably a smart idea. It's a decision. <laughs> so are there better activities? You know, if we go twenties through sixties, we're like, okay, twenties have at it, ski, take a little bit more risk. But, you know, the data shows once you hit in your 40s, you sh- and if you don't like love skiing, you should probably start to avoid it. Like, are there certain recreational sports or activities by decade where it's kind of like your window to do it? And maybe you should pivot, like maybe tennis better in your 30s, pickleball better in your 50s. Although I read that everyone's getting hurt playing pickleball, but I've got a theory on that. So I'll pause there. What, do, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that, you know, the fact is, is that injury really is part and parcel to physical activity and sport, right? It's a risk that we all take every time that we lace up or hit the courts or do anything. Um, and a lot of times it's, I feel like a lot of times it is, just, it's so individual and it could be just bad luck sometimes, right? So I think, you know, again, I don't want to say that any one thing is better at any one time because really, at least to me, the most important thing is that people are getting out and moving their bodies in a way that they enjoy. So if that means that they enjoy skiing in their sixties, right? Like do it. Like that's, if that's going to bring you joy and that gets you out there, that gets you moving your body, that's the important thing. But that being said, right, there are things we could do 
to all of us at every age to make our bodies more resilient, right? And I think that that is that is things like making sure you're strength training, like thinking about mobility, those things do become more important as we age. I mean, in your in my 20s, I could get away with a whole lot of stuff that I wouldn't be able to get away with now, right? That And that means that now at my age, I do need to make sure I'm hitting the gym and strength training. I do need to make sure that I'm hydrating and paying attention to my nutrition. I do need to make sure that I'm resting and recovering because I need more of that time or my body does, right? And so it's recognizing how the needs of our body and how you feel might shift with age and accommodating that. I absolutely agree. Do what brings you joy. And so, look, I would say if, if you're, is it, is it fair to say if you're 60 and you haven't started skiing, don't start. But if you're 25 and you haven't started skiing and you want to ski, go for it. I mean, probably sure. I mean, probably right there. There are some there are some sports out there that are going to be more risky. So, like something like skiing, right? Like that is that does require a lot more. Like I think physical coordination, maybe, and then just in and of itself is more risky. And, and you bring up resistance training, hydration, uh, you know, working on your mobility and so forth. And, and, you know, pickleball, for example, we started playing pickleball. I love it. And then sure enough, I'm seeing articles uh, going viral about how, how many people are getting injured playing pickleball. And I say to myself, huh, I play pickleball. You know what? I actually don't think the sport is that intense, but what I think is happening, my thesis is it's a sport that's very popular. It doesn't require a lot of movement. It's very social, so everyone is apt to play. And that's leading to an older population, 50 plus to play. And my guess is looking at the state of health in America that most of these people aren't very mobile, aren't in the best shape, and all of a sudden are getting out there and playing pickleball and they haven't stretched, they don't do resistance training and so forth. And that's why they're getting hurt. It's not because pickleball is brutal on the body. Like that's my take. What's your take on that? I 100% agree with that because, I mean, with everything, right? It's like whenever you're starting something new, or even if you think about like coming back from injury, you're not going to like, so when I eventually have (laughs) have surgery and come back from this, I'm not going to then just go out and run six miles, right? Like I will probably very painfully try to get my knee to go around like a bike, right? And try to, so it's, it's, it is thinking about like, especially when you are picking up something new and, or you are picking up something when you haven't been as active in a long time, it just being um, measured about it, right? And I think that's really hard in our society because we just want to go out and do all the things. Um, and we, a lot of folks tend to be competitive, right? Or a lot of folks, you know, may have played sports when they were younger and like wanted to like kind of recreate that feeling too. But I think it is like, it comes back to having to respect your body, right? Where it is. Let's talk about rest and recovery from injury. Cause to your point, look, I don't think you can live a life playing sports and just be so fearful of injury. Injuries happen. It's a reality. If you play sports, I suffered numerous injuries. Uh, one of which I will point out, you know, to this day, I still have regrets. And my junior year in high school, I had a third degree high ankle sprain, which was worse than a break. And it was extraordinarily painful. And I was the star player on my team. 
my coach was a terrible coach and mentally abusive, unfortunately, and really pressured me to come back. And I ended up coming back, in his view, too late. But the reality was it was too early. And to this day, if you look at my right ankle compared to my left, like there's bone spurs, like it's phys- it's bigger. And I, I, the reason I regret it is, I put it this way, I lost a step and I didn't have a step to lose. I needed to gain a step, even though I still went on to play basketball in college. But at any rate, and... Since then, you know, I've thought a lot about injury and recovery and the pressure we put on ourselves and then the the external pressure. And I get that it's tricky. Uh, How do you think about injury and recovery and this idea of am I, can I come back to 80% and then get to a hundred as I play, or do I need to get to a hundred? And I get, there's a lot of nuance here, but how do you think about injury and recovery? Yeah. First off, I'm sorry that you had that experience with your coach. All all worked out, but. But I mean, but the fact is, is right. Like that's a reality still in a lot of, in a lot of schools and and whatnot. Um, Yeah. As someone who is, who has gone through a lot of injury, it's, it's taken time, right. In terms of thinking about, um, or my perspective, at least on injury and recovery, because it is the most frustrating thing, right. When you are injured and you're, all you want to do is do the thing that you can't do. And you feel like you've lost a part of yourself. You've lost a part of your identity. You don't quite feel right in your skin because you're like itching to do the thing. Um, so it's taken a long time to recognize that, yes, that stings and it's really hard. Um, but if I do want to continue doing these things in the longer term, I do have to be patient. And I do have to recognize that there are going to be dips and bumps along the road. It's not going to be like a straight shot back, right? Um, but I have to do the work to get me back to where I want to be. And it stinks, right? Like it's, it's, the last thing that I, I want to be doing is going to physical therapy like two times a week and then doing like these silly exercises all the time. But yeah. I'm like, we used to have a running joke in high school and then again, playing in college where essentially ice and stem could solve everything, you know, ice and stem. And then here was God knows what uh, pharmaceutical in, in college they would give you. Uh, <laughs> to, to, and, and the other thing I, uh, I, I think it's funny. I don't know if anyone else will, but the, our, 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 our trainer in college used to say, are you hurt or are you injured? <laughs> I'm like the, the nuance in that. <laughs> and it's, I think it's particularly hard for kids, right? Like high school athletes, college athletes to draw that distinction between am I hurt or am I injured? Can I, push through this? Should I push through this? Because there is so much pressure, like you, like you experience, right? To get back out there and play. And especially say like in college, if you're on a scholarship, then it's like, is this going to affect my scholarship? Is this going to affect my, you know, my, my place on the team? And the answer is it will. Like, unfortunately it will like that. That's the reality. These are businesses. hundred percent. And yeah, I've talked to a lot of collegiate um, women 
who feel all of this pressure, right, and ended up hurting themselves more, you know, similarly came back too soon, didn't recover enough. Um, and it's, it's detrimental, right? Um, and but at the same time, like we were saying, like, it is hard when that is your entire world too. And such an key part of your identity that when you don't have it or you feel like you can lose it, um, it's really scary. Yes, it, it, it is. And I think that you hit the, it hits on the theme where so many Olympic, ex-Olympic athletes, professional athletes really struggle with their mental health. You know, I think Michael Phelps has, you know, been very uh, you know open about his mental health struggles and there are other lots of other Olympic athletes and professional athletes when when your identity is wrapped up in this one thing and that thing ends uh, it's difficult yeah I wonder if there is a way you know especially as parents especially like when our kids are younger too is 100% right encouraging their love of sport um, but also helping them develop other interests, or at least recognizing that their value and worth isn't just tied to whether or not they're the highest scorer on their team or whether or not they're the fastest on their team. Um, because I feel like, especially in our society, it's so easy to do that, right? Like it's so easily to just focus on those accolades um, and nothing else. <laughs> so I will be a dad who brags. So I'm I am proud that our, our one daughter scored four goals in her in her soccer game. And she was so happy about it and it was so cute. Uh and and my wife and I were that's so great you scored, but what's more important is you worked hard, you had fun, and you were calm. It doesn't matter if you the goals are great, but like, and I don't know if this is going in one ear and not the other. Uh, but we kept on, it's not about the goals. It's about, you got to work hard. We believe in working hard, having fun and being calm. Like those are our values as a family, as it relates to sports. Like that's what matters. Goals are bonuses. Yeah. Well, I mean, they listen a lot more, I think, than we probably give them credit for. Right. And, and they take in a lot more, but I think that's such an important message. And, and so, you know, we both obviously love, love sports. Um, my love has changed and evolved as I've aged out of playing competitively, uh, which has been quite some time. Now, the other day I was doing the math in preparation for the interview. You know, I've spent more time of my life, now it's not even close, not playing basketball competitively than I did. You know, 48 now. I've been, last game I played was 25 years ago. I played basketball from, you know, age six or seven to 23 so like wow it's not even close anymore uh with that said you know again all uh, i would say the majority of our listeners are past college and 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 play recreationally or maybe thinking about playing something recreationally or participating in individual sport let's talk about longevity and like the health benefits and, and your love for sport. And in my view, it's critical to find something that does bring you joy. That is a sport. How do you think about that? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it's funny cause, um, my mom ever, I mean, ever since like high school and stuff would always question like, why are you doing this? Like what, like, because, you know, for her, especially as, you know, a Chinese Chinese woman, right? And there are a lot of 
that's a whole other conversation, a lot of like cultural things around, you know, girls being active and what our bodies need to look like. But she would always give me crap about, you know, playing sports or going to the gym or, you know, lifting weights and stuff like that. But for me, I was like, but I love it, right? Like it's, it's when I feel the most grounded and most like me. And like I said, like I was never a great athlete, but yet it was something that kind of sustained me in a way that I'd never expected. And so it's for a long time, um, I think my perspective has been, I do these things because it's healthy for me um, or it'll make me fit. Um, you know, my dad died from a heart attack when I was young. And so I've always been like, well, I want to be around for my kids, right? Like I want to make sure that I'm healthy enough for them. But I think as I've gotten older too, it has evolved a little bit more to really understanding that, yes, health benefits are undeniable, right? There's so many reasons why moving our bodies consistently, um, whatever that means is a good thing. Um, but I think, again, it comes back to this idea that it brings me joy. Like it, it makes me feel whole in a way that I don't, I'm very few things I think can. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so I, I'm curious coming back to the, the studies that you mentioned and lack of them for, for women and girls specifically, if, if you could wave your magic wand and have, you know, one perfect study done in the field, what, what would that study look like? Boy, that's a big question. I think it's hard to say because I think it, it, it's not, it's never going to be just one study because just the way that science is and medicine is, um, in order for something to be evidence-based, you need, you need that evidence base. You need multiple studies. So what I think I would say instead is that I would like to see kind of, um, a, an overhaul of the methodologies. Because if we think about it, it really is the methodology of how these studies are performed, um, how these studies are framed, how these studies, like the questions that the studies are asking, is what then drives the results that we'll end up getting, if that makes sense. So in terms of like just rethinking the methodology, it is like making sure that you do include a more diverse population of people. And, you know, I'm not just talking about women. Of course, we need to study more women, but we also need to study people from like non-Western countries because that's where most of these studies are coming from. And if we expand that base of participants, then we can learn more about humans across, like all humans, right? Like across these different divides um, and, and hopefully get better information that way. But I would, you know, say that in order, if we come back to women, in order to study women better, there needs to be standardization in thinking about how you account for things like fluctuating hormones, because that's always been given as the reason why women aren't included in these studies is because it's too complicated. It's too much noise in the data. So then fine, if that's the case, then how do we account for that? How do we make sure that we have standards across these different studies so that when they are done, we can actually compare results and we're comparing apples to apples versus apples to bananas, right? Um, what are our definitions around these things, Around even around like what menstrual phases mean, right? Um, so I think like starting there, starting with that infrastructure will make a big difference. Where do you want this conversation to go? I mean, I, again, I come back to the reason that I wrote this book was 
it started with wanting to understand why all of this was happening and understanding what the implications were for girls and women in sport and our health and our longevity. Um, I want this conversation for people to start just asking questions more, or at least just starting to think more critically about these things. Um, for girls and women in particular, I want them to understand that, you know, we've often been made to feel like our experiences are an exception to the rule or, you know, are not right because we don't follow this, this development trajectory that boys follow. I want them to know that that all of their experience is valid, right? Like, and the reason why we might be made to feel like they're not valid is because of the system and the environment around us. And ultimately, what I hope that this does is that by asking these questions, by hopefully getting more research and information, we're able to give better guidance to people, again, at all ages, at all levels of sport, that can help them not only get involved in physical activity if they haven't been before, but help them stay involved for the long term and progress in whatever way, shape, or form that might mean to them, right? So just helping people, like, again, hopefully finding that joy that I found um, and nurturing that, really. I love that. I I'm curious, is there a particular female athlete you admire or look up to for one reason or another? Um, I kind of asked this question the other day and I felt like it was trying to, it was like asking me to choose between my children. Like it's children are off the table. We'll go, we'll go to like a professional or Olympian children. It's off so the table. hard. It's so hard. But, um, so my answer right now would be Des Linden. So she won the 2018 Boston marathon. And part of the reason that that, um, comes up is right. Boston marathon was last weekend, I think. <laughs> My dates are all messed up. But anyhow, um, she is, she won the marathon. She's a, she was the first American runner, uh, woman to win that marathon in, I think, over 30 years or something like that. Um, and it was this crazy race. There was literally a nor'easter. There were like 30 mile an hour headwinds. There were like sheets of rain. Um, she didn't think, sh she thought she was going to drop out that day. Um, but it, she kept grinding and she's really gritty. She's just very like mentally strong and tough. Um, and she won, right? But what we, most of us didn't know at that time was she was like within that year had been diagnosed with a severe hyperthyroidism. So she was dealing, like she was close to being in a coma at one point, right? Because she didn't recognize that there was something wrong. Um, so the fact that she was not only dealing with this crazy like health issue and coming back to train for a, you know a marathon, but she won the friggin' thing, right? Um, she's just, yeah, I mean, she, and she's also just super down to earth and just seems like a really pretty fun person to hang out with. And if you, let's say, had the ability to have a giant billboard to get your message out to women, what would you put on that that billboard? I would say you're not the exception to the rule. You are the rule. I love it. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is super fun. <laughs>